I'm feeling a bit hoarse. Hey, I'm Max Kaiser. This is the Kaiser Report. Stacy. Max, we couldn't leave London without giving you some headlines. Oh, some great. I have headlines. Oh, that is nice. Tell them to me now. Yes. The sort that would give you some great joy. Oh, great. Corporate Brexitus begins as no deal Brexit looms. We do have an exit day. The exit day is scheduled to begin on March 29, 2019 at 11 p.m. GMT. That's 274 days away. And well, the corporate Brexitus is beginning, getting ready for that day in 274 days. I see you've remained calm. You haven't yeah. laughed, you haven't, we need like a horse or done any of that stuff. Well, you know, people know that I have strong views on Brexit. <laughs> and then when I express them, they say, dude, calm down. Why are you being so over the top and crazy with your views on Brexit? But uh, look, the corporations now realize that this was a huge mistake. So you've got Airbus is saying, we don't want to be a part of this anymore. You've got all the security mechanisms and agencies in the EU saying, we don't want to be part of Britain anymore. You've got car companies dropping out, aviation companies we mentioned, banks dropping out. Everyone wants to get out because if you don't have the supernatural institutions that cover the EU and you want to be part of that, and you just want to be a separate go-it-alone island under a large rain cloud, swimming in Marmite, worshiping some old hag in a crown, those people in France, Germany, and Italy, and the rest are saying, no, we don't want to be a part of that. Nevertheless, Brexiters may win the Nobel Peace Prize one day for the fact that they may reunify Ireland. The troubles are finally over, thanks to Brexit. <laughs> exactly. But so let's look at some of the corporate Brexitus that's happening. Uh, we've already covered the fact, and it's been well covered, that J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs are heading out to Milan and Paris and expanding their offices there, cutting back office here. Construction and infrastructure giant Ferrovial has announced it is moving its international headquarters from the UK to low tax haven Amsterdam because of Brexit. The Spanish firm, which owns a quarter of the UK's busiest airport Heathrow and runs its US, Canadian, Polish and UK operations from Oxford, says it needs to keep within EU legislation after the UK leaves the EU. And Airbus, of course, you already mentioned, is uh, will possibly leave. Right. Now, to be clear, be leading up to the referendum, I said this was an economic disaster. And then right after the referendum, boom, 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 I said, you know, this is going to be continue to be an economic disaster. On the week of the referendum, I said, this is fantastic that David Cameron is getting his teeth kicked in and making, you know, that that pig loving David Cameron with his, you know, whatever dodging. happened to David Cameron? That's the phrase now. He's uh, a pig farmer. He, he's, you know, he's, he's, he so loves pigs so much. He's, he's probably in France being a pig farmer. He's a French pig farmer now. But you know, on that day, I said, "Oh, this great that David Cameron got kicked in the teeth like this." That don't misconstrue that as me saying, "Oh, this is I'm pro Brexit." No, I'm anti David Cameron and and Brexit clearly leading. But a lot of the voters were Max. A lot of the voters were because you were talking about you were talking before. Uh, Brexit as a person who is um, able to benefit from the economy. The, con the economy today does not benefit most people. So they were able to give a kick in the teeth to people that they saw as the elites who were on the BBC, were on ITV, who were on Channel 4, who were on all the major media here, and they were telling you, please, whatever you do, do not vote for Brexit because this will upset us dearly. And well, Either way, the economy did not work for a huge percentage of the economy. The economy did not work for a huge percentage of American voters before the 2016 election. So they said, well, 
either way I lose, so I might as well kick somebody in the teeth. So that's what they were. You are able to travel around the world, go to international capitals, visit cities, and, and participate in the economy. A lot of people can't. I understand that need to find a scapegoat for how bad the UK economy is. And why not Brexit? It can't get any worse. But my point is not that I think the EU is great. I think the EU is atrocious. The way that they treat Greece is atrocious. The way the EU is treating the UK now is like they're treating the UK like Greece, right? They've become an easy country to attack financially and profit from its demise. But the, my point is not that the EU is good. My point is that the EU had a, an influence on the UK that made the UK less horrible. If you take the EU out, all you're left with are now Parliament, the UK, all the institutions of the UK, unchecked by any civilizing force whatsoever. And smaller, because no, Northern Ireland is going to Northern Ireland will be gone. So now you've got all these predatory, creepy MPs and a prime minister and the, all these institutions like the BBC praying unchecked, nothing to stop them now, no rules from the EU, just attacking the population unmercifully. So here are some more corporations leaving. We're just going to go over some of the data just to show you the state of play. Um, a lot of co companies have been kind of waiting. They've been doing a waiting game because... <laughs> You know, for the past two years, they've been trying to drown the fish, as they, as we learned is a good phrase in France. They've been drowning the fish, hoping that nobody notices that they're, they're supposed to have an exit date. And, you know, everybody's hoping that the voter forgot about it. And, you know, the, there is a theory that after three days, most people move on, like from a news article, they don't notice it anymore. Well, apparently now corporations are starting to say, well, we're, we're starting to have to make plans because it's not cheap to move Brexit entire Brexit is office. political herpes <laughs> for <laughs> no, British people. Nobody they now wants to are, mention it. It's like getting crabs and herpes in the same day. Okay, well, at the same time, investment in Britain's car industry has shrunk by half to the lowest figure since the financial crisis, according to figures from the Society of Motor Manufacturers and Traders in the first six months of 2018, investment in new models and factory uh, has declined, while Goldman Sachs is also planning to double their headquarters in uh, Frankfurt. Um, by the way, the whole uh, printing sort of, of documents here, that's kind of, they, they skip every other page. <laughs> so Look, there's already a Brexitus of my documents. Oh, my God, the Brexit, the documents. Any country that's forced to watch Piers Morgan every morning is in deep trouble over there at ITV. I mean, come on, Britain. How did you come to this? So the other, the, the people that are happy for Brexit are also involved corporations that in the United Kingdom you can't talk about because um, they're very powerful. Again, you know, here in the UK, they have all sorts of libel laws. And basically, you can't say a single thing against corporations. Uh, you could talk about American corporations because they are ingrained with the notion of First Amendment and people can say what they want. Uh, but here in the United Kingdom, you certainly can't talk about US corporations or UK corporations. So I won't mention any of the corporations in here, but you could do your own research and look at this. But the fracking firms are very excited for Brexit because um, EU regulations re involving environmental protections. So That's exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, I'll just read the headline because then, yeah. like, too much mention of any corporation involved in well, fracking. Yeah, don't, don't mention any yeah, company. You can't mention it, no. but, but 
I don't know if Google's blocked, if you can even do a search here, but if, you know, you could use a VPN and go around and pretend you're in America and look for these sort of corporations. But of Brexit, the fracking lobby and the revolving door. Fracking firms are keen to benefit from Brexit and are hiring firms staffed by well-placed insiders to lobby on their behalf. Right. That's the but upside of fracking. Fracking is a known uh, economic disaster. You can't make any money with fracking. It's all debt-based, and then the fracking rigs expire before the debt's paid off, and then all that debt goes on to the national balance sheet. So Britain's national debt, which is, last I checked, something just under two trillion pounds, is going to go to three trillion pounds yeah. because of all these busted fracking rigs, number one. Number two, it's a health issue. It's a known health issue. They've got known carcinogenics in all the fracking fluids. It's a, it's a known environmental disaster. Any place the frackers go, the countryside will look like frickin' Mars on crack. And then you can't say anything over at the BBC, of course, because if you mention this over in the BBC, saying you're not being impartial enough. You're not being impartial enough. You're not being impartial enough. Oh, you have to say exactly what the state wants you to say. Oh, that's better. Now you're being impartial. Okay. Well, the fact is that these frackers uh, are happy for the Brexit. Right. There's no because, EU checks. Because, there's no there, checks there's and balances. There's no environmental regulations right. on that. So in that case, they were definitely they were protecting the population of the UK, which and we've already covered fracking over and over. But I also want to look over at the U US, where um, we also have a very big story in the news. And that is uh, Theresa May's friend, Donald Trump, has had this immigration policy where he separate, he tried to separate these families, took little three-year-old kids and two-year-old kids in diapers and put them in prison and their own little immigration center, all run by private companies, by the way. And, I mean, I even saw reports that their little two- or three-year-old kids were brought by the, their own with their lawyer, public defender, in front of a, ju in front of a judge to, like, explain themselves. They took him out of daycare to, yeah. to, to go uh, and yeah, have look, a uh, visit daddy at work day? Well, they went to court and they had to uh, answer for themselves about why they crossed this border. And um, one of the kids climbed up on the counter and the, the judge's desk and didn't know better. But uh, nevertheless, prison operators could cash in on Trump's zero tolerance immigration policy. The biggest private prison operators, which have poured money into Republican coffers, stand to make a windfall from President Donald Trump's zero tolerance policy on illegal immigration. That has pushed thousands of undocumented immigrants into detention. So Core Civic is one of the biggest groups, and uh, their shares are up 79% since the 2016 presidential election, and GEO shares have, are up 85%. But just like the fracking, just like all the horrible stuff, like uh, these are this is the same sort of grotesque lobbying that um, are basically able to plunder the population with grotesquerie, whether it's... <laughs> A horrible environmental disaster or a horrible humanitarian disaster of of taking babies from their mothers and putting them in front of a court to answer for their actions. Right, uh, it is grotesquerie, as you point out, and uh, that kind of American style grotesquerie is going to be more prevalent in the UK now without the mitigating influence of the EU and the regulations. And we're already seeing that in the fracking industry and in these other industries, and it's only going to get worse. And so you're going to take a population that's being victimized by corporatism, which is like a nice way to say fascism. Or grotesquerie. Grotesquerieism. The only possibly good thing to come out of this would be like music, good music. Maybe punk rock comes back. Maybe Johnny Rotten, John Lydon comes back and starts cutting new records and get out of the butter selling business. God save the queen and her fracking regime. You know, I can fill in for Sid. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the Kaiser Report. I'm Max Kaiser. 
And let us welcome back into the studio, founder of Gold Money and Manet, deep thinker, Roy Sabag. Welcome back. Thanks for having me again. All right, I, I used this in the first uh, conversation, and I, I think I must now begin to talk about it, otherwise people will just freak out here. So this is, as I mentioned, 24-karat gold investment jewelry. It's from a company called Manet, which is a company that you founded, you started. And it's fascinating because it is investment jewelry. It is priced in a way that fluctuates exactly with the spot price of gold. And you're educating a whole world, a whole, the whole Western world, about how gold is actually bought and sold in more or less the Eastern world by weight. Correct. That's the key. So you've launched this thing, and it, the site, the business is really taken off. People have taken to this quite rapidly. How's it going? It's going really well. Um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, I'm very passionate about gold. It's what led to the founding of Gold Money, Inc., which was originally known as BitGold. Um, and it, it feeds into what we talked about earlier. You know, at the end of the day, uh, instead of all the elaborate conversations we just had, you can always simplify it that politicians are always going to want to screw you over in a fiat money system. And so gold is your way of preserving your purchasing power. With gold money, we did that by establishing a financial service, uh, an institution that allowed you to hold your wealth in gold. But to really uh, help people and, and broaden access to physical gold, which is, which is really the key here, physical gold, uh, I recognized about two years ago that I had to disrupt the jewelry industry. Uh, the jewelry industry consumes most of the mined gold. About $150 billion a year flows directly into jewelry. And what I found was that the Eastern jewelry markets were quite efficient. Uh, they were actually uh, engaging and, and, and dealing with jewelry in the same manner that People have been dealing with jewelry for thousands of years, since the beginning of time. Uh, jewelry is generally made out of 24 karat gold, which just means the way gold is found in nature. When you go and find gold in a rock, uh, it's not 18 karat or 14 karat. That's an invention, a human invention, an alloy, where the pure gold is taken and diluted down. When you find jewelry in the East, it's 24 karat and it's sold by weight and it generally is devoid of any gems or diamonds or stones. So the goal is that jewelry is really a weight of objective value. It can be bought, it can be sold, it can be exchanged, uh, you know, forever. I know I was, uh, you know, one that bought into the myth that you can't own 24 karat gold, it's too soft. Yeah. But this is 24 karat gold. It is pliable, it's yes. bendable, but it's not in any way, you know, too soft. It's, it's, it's soft for a metal, but it's still a metal. And that's the key. Um, you know, people that, that repeat that myth, it's generally um, a lie perpetuated by the Western jewelry industry. Right. So if we got, when I started to learn about the Western jewelry industry, I was really appalled to see that in the old days, you could find uh, Tiffany's selling you jewelry by weight. Uh, but nowadays, the jewelry industry is really incentivized by Wall Street um, and by their own greed to have minimal working capital, which means that they uh, try to generate very high returns on their capital and try to generate the highest margins. And they've been engaging in this game of how much margins could we charge our customer for the last 40 years. So when you buy something from Cartier or Tiffany's or even Pandora, which is a, a lower cost jewelry brand, 90% of what you're paying for is uh, BS. It's, it's, it's basically the brand. They call it the brand. But of course, when you leave the store, you can't sell it for that value. So really, uh, you're just paying a very small amount of money for the intrinsic metal value. And what we're doing with Monet is we're 
turning that equation 180 degrees. We're inverting it so that when you buy a piece of Monet jewelry, 90% of the value, 80 to 90, is going towards the intrinsic metal value, and only 10% is going to design. And, and all of our pieces are, are pure gold, pure platinum. The prices change every single day. When gold goes up, an, an item is right. more expensive. You go to the website, yeah. you'll see this, this item, I think it's called the Torque. The Torque, uh, yeah. It'll give you the current spot price of this item. And you can, I believe, actually, if you wanted to, I could go to Monet and sell it for the spot price minus a fee. There's a whole platform. Once you buy an item, you can actually track its uh, performance, just like a stock. Uh, you could press sell and sell it. We send you an envelope, just like the old Netflix. You, you throw it in, it's fully insured. We ship to 80 countries around the world. You can gift items. You can even do something called Monet Harvest, where you uh, pay towards an item, lock in the price at the time of purchase. And once you've fully paid, we ship it to you. So it's a really, really cool way what to- What people do when they get these, I see they make a video and they put it on the, on the scale, <laughs> and they see if they it actually if weighs liars, yeah. the exact weight to advertise. <laughs> And occasionally someone will say, oh my God, it's actually a fraction of a gram over what <laughs> I paid. Yeah. And they're like ecstatic. And, and, and now you've got these, uh, these are interesting, these little charms because they are pure 24 karat gold and uh, they're easily to collect. And um, you know, this is obviously appeals to folks that just wanna get in on the, on the gold action uh, in, in a starter kit, so to speak but it's quite, quite lovely. So now let's transition to the big picture here because people are buying gold at Monet, they're storing gold at Gold Money, and then you've got countries like Russia that are buying frickin' hundreds of tons of gold yeah. uh, because they see something happening in the global picture. What's happening there? Why is, why is Russia buying so much gold? Well, I think that um, everyone is recognizing that uh, you know, we're not going to be living in a US dollar-centric world for much longer. And I think that the wise countries are preparing for this by uh, establishing some other alternate medium of exchange uh, or store of value. And when you go through the periodic tables, this is what I always say, uh, you find that there's really only one way uh, to supplement uh, any form of trade. Remember, you can't predict what type of trade you're going to have in the future. Russia can't predict if it's going to sell China a lot of oil, a lot of grains, a lot of babushka dolls. But what it can do is it can stock up on an intermediate commodity that has the same cost inputs as any other good or service. And those inputs are energy, labor, and time. And gold happens to do a very good job of absorbing a lot of those inputs and then storing them for a subsequent transaction. That's all it does. So, so you say study the periodic table, the periodic table of elements. Yes. Right? So gold is number... 79. 79. I, I often use that myself by proving my high school chemistry class and hopefully getting it correct. And I know um, your your partner, Josh Crum, who uh, comes from a geology background, yeah. loves to get into the actual ge 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 geological properties of gold and that it has um, all the unique characteristics that make it perfect for money. And um, so what you're saying is on the macroeconomic uh, world, uh, Russia is recognizing that it, you take labor, you take energy, uh, it stores, it's, it can be used for trade. But uh, is there a fear now that we are reaching the end of this U.S. dollar hegemony, of the U.S. dollar as world reserve currency? If Trump, as we've discussed earlier, is going and redrawing all the trade negotiations, is there a thought that we need uh, to protect ourselves against having all this stuff going, going, going uh, awry and we're you know, heading back to very basic trade, trade in gold? 
I, I think it's a real uh, possibility because, um, first of all, if you're not living in the U.S., you're at a great disadvantage today in terms of um, the chess game. Uh, Trump is really ahead of everyone by three or four moves. And I think that their only way for Europe... So Europe can't engage in reciprocal trade. So what, that, what does that do to the euro? Does the euro survive? Uh, Russia can engage in reciprocal trade with the United States, but at the moment, um, that doesn't seem to be an option for them. And I think Russia has much more important trading partners like China. I think that the way people should think about it is they should always be allocating a portion of their savings to gold. And that portion that they allocate to gold will always be available to them in the form of purchasing power. Uh, the same equivalent purchasing power doesn't always work every year, but it works really, really well if you stretch the arrow of time. There's a wonderful book about this. It's called The Golden Constant by Roy Jastrom, who is a Harvard economist. Um, and it really shows how gold maintains its purchasing power over thousands of years. Uh, you know, one of, the, one of the nice ways that he does it is he says, a Roman senator's toga was one ounce of gold. A Brooks Brothers suit in the 19th century was one ounce of gold. And a new Italian suit today is one ounce of gold. So the gold is simply preserving purchasing power. It's not making you rich, and it's certainly uh, allowing you to avoid being poor. Now, you speak of, about Trump playing 4D chess. You speak about Trump as being, you know, mastering the game. You know, you're speaking about Trump in very positive uh, ways that I would say most Amer of America doesn't share. They are, he's constantly being attacked and he's being vilified and he's being shown by mainstream media as being a, a character that is reprehensible in many ways. And what, what, do, what, what are people missing about Trump? Because when you talk about Trump, you know, I travel the world and I look at the global economy and the U.S. economy and I share a lot of your views there that he is actually doing some stuff that makes a lot of sense from pure economics point of view. But what is the, what is the media getting so wrong about Trump? And are they, you know, they looks like they're going to fail miserably in this 2018 election cycle and the 2020 election cycle. They're, they're dedicated to scapegoating Russia for the failings of the Democrats and Hillary. And yet, um, if they looked a little bit more closely, they would see this guy is actually making some good moves. H how can he break through that, that sound barrier, do you think? It's kind of an odd question, but... So, so I want to be clear. At Gold Money, our policy is always to not make any political comments. So I, I, don't, I, I can't make a political comment about Trump, whether I'm for or against him or not. Uh, but what I can do is make economic observations. And I think it's unequivocal that Trump's economic moves are the right moves. You know, there's a lot of talk about this concept known as mercantilism. I'm sure you know a little bit about that. And uh, a lot of the uh, Austrian economists especially um, and the modern Keynesians seem to share the same view that mercantilism is terrible and Adam Smith proved it doesn't work and this and that. I actually think that mercantilism is exactly the way one should run their country. And all it means is that you don't run trade deficits and you accumulate metal, bullion, or some form of surplus. I think that's very sound advice. I have personally seen uh, members of my family be very poorly impacted by the policies of the globalists over the last 20 and 30 years, uh, people that were in, involved in the industrial economy and the manufacturing side. I have seen a lot of the nonsense em emanate from Ivy League schools and think tanks saying that automation and people have to learn new trades and new skills and robots are going to solve everything and scarcity is a man-made invention and all this nonsense that I can 
given my understanding of economics and observing reality uh, dispute. Uh, we're producing more steel than ever in the world. We're producing more oil than ever. Uh, we're producing more automobiles than ever. Uh, there's absolutely no reason why the United States should have seen its manufacturing base hollowed out, its good, high-quality jobs hollowed out um, in, in lieu of really gig economy service jobs. Okay, so just to be clear, so with mercantilism, you have a, a mechanism to um, uh, periodically uh, balance the books. Correct. Right? So um, if a country's running huge trade deficits, um, then at some point uh, gold is swapped, and the books are balanced. Correct. And so it's a way to put a limiter on um, what we see the excesses in monetarism, where you've got money printing leading to malinvestment. Correct. Right? And you have- It, it demands of the state the exact same principles we demand of the citizen. Why does the citizen have to balance their books and the state gets to uh, run deficits? Um, and a trade deficit, I. Sometimes I, I find myself reflecting on this, and I think a trade deficit is even worse than a budget deficit, um, especially when you have free flow of capital, when you can take the capital back and instantly recycle it back, and then you're not just, you're not just hollowing out the manufacturing base, but you're also selling your assets to your uh, competitors. And of course, with uh, gold, you have individual sovereignty. Make your own little mercantilist policy. Individual sovereignty, that's the key. And uh, gold money? We're investors. Uh, Manet is the spinoff of gold money. And you've got some other things you're cooking up in the back room of the Roy Sabag brain, which we can hopefully talk about next time you're on. Thank you. I would love to. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of the Kaiser Report with me, Max Kaiser, and Stacey Herbert. I'd like to thank our guest, Roy Sabag of goldmoney.com and Manet. If you want to reach us on Twitter, it's Kaiser Report. And there's a Twitter from Manet, at Manet, M-E-N-E. There's some Picasso woman designs it all. I mean, how cool is that? Until next time. Bye, y'all.